How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this evening. We thank you for the fact that you have watched over this nation since September 11th, kept us secure. We pray that you would continue to do so, especially now with a heightened security alert, uh, some obvious threats that are made against this country, continued uh, enemies that continue to seek to bring about its downfall. We know that our security lies ultimately in you, and we pray that you would um, just give those in security positions the insight the eyesight, the observation skills they need to see what they need to see. We pray that you would foil our enemies and you would protect us from these insidious plots. Father, we continue to pray for this nation as a bastion of truth, for there are many believers, there's much doctrine that is taught here, many missionaries that still go out from this country, supported from this country, who go throughout the world to teach doctrine and to proclaim the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation because he paid for the penalty of every sin in human history on the cross. And we pray that you would continue to protect us, that we might continue to fulfill this, this mission. Father, now as we study your word this evening, help us to understand the things that we examine, gain a greater understanding of all that took place in our creation, that we may have a greater understanding of who we are and your plans and purposes for us as human beings. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study in Genesis, and we are in Genesis 1 down to the sixth day in verse 24. We started off in the first three verses, seeing that verse 1 describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is a merism. Uh, describing the totality of the space-time universe that is described in the overhead diagram is simply a dark circle. The heavens were basically empty except for the presence of the earth, and the earth at that time was much different, radically different from the earth at this time, as much different from the earth at this time as the future earth that will be created with the new heavens and the new earth. Those of you who hear the birds... That is going to be one of the primary objectives at the workday. Bring your BB guns, and we will dispatch as many people as possible into the rafters to see if we can disperse with those birds. They just about drive me to distraction. Okay, I think Sunday morning I, I lost my train of thought about three times trying to hear myself over the sound of those birds. Okay, we have the new earth, I mean the original earth, and just like the new heavens and new earth that are going to be created in Revelation uh, 21 and 22, it is radically different from this earth, an earth that was not tainted by sin until you had the fall of the angels. 
And when Lucifer led the rebellion, there was a judgment on the earth, and the earth was plunged into darkness. The lights in the universe were turned out. There's no light. Everything's in darkness, which is a sign of judgment. And the earth was said to be in a state of chaos. Tohu vabohu. It was without form and void. It was formless and empty. And then beginning in verse 3, we have the six-day restoration process that comes in on the earth. Now, one, a lot of people say, well, do you really believe that it took God six days or that God created the heavens and the earth or the earth in six days? And my response is, well, the God, and I, that really surprises me because I think God could have done it in about six seconds or six microseconds. God did it in that pattern, as we're going to see when we get into the first part of chapter 2, in order to set a work cycle pattern for the human race. He didn't take six days because there was so much to do. He took six days for restoring the planet in order to set a time pattern uh, for a regular seven-day week with one day of rest in that week. The stars that we have now, as we saw last time, aren't created until the fourth day, and there's no necessity for having stars in the original universe. There will be no stars, no sun, no moon in the in the new heavens that are created uh, after this universe is, is uh, destroyed. So the uh, logical co- conclusion from that is that there probably wasn't a there, we know there wasn't a sun and a moon in the first heavens and probably no stars as well. We saw that the there is a pattern to the six days of restoration. The first three days solve the problem of Tohu. There's a chaotic, unformed earth as a result of the judgment on Satan. And so in the first three days, that chaos is undone and, and the different environments are going to, our different spheres of activity are going to be formed. In day one, we have the creation of light, the separation of light from darkness, which begins a time sequence, morning or evening and morning for each day. Second day, there is the creation of the atmosphere, wrongly translated firmament in the King James, and this atmosphere then separates uh, between the upper waters and the lower waters. So there is a spatial separation. You have the creation of atmosphere, and then on day three, you have the the separation of the seas from the dry land. So you have the creation of the hydrospheres, that is the water, and the various biospheres for different types of life on planet Earth. So there is, uh, and also the sprouting of vegetation, trees and shrubs, which would include all pattern of vegetation on the Earth. Then in the second cycle of days, day four, five, and six, we have the chaos reversed in terms of the emptiness. Tohu was unformed, Bohu is unfilled, and so Bohu indicates it is reversed now in day four as each of these uh, spheres is now filled. For example, you had the in day one you have light and the separation of light from darkness, and now on day four you have the the light focused into light bearers, the sun, moon, and the stars. On day two we had the atmosphere created, and on day five you have the creatures of the air created. On day two, there was the separation of the lower waters, which became the seas. On day five, you have creatures of the water created. 
On day three, you had the continents, the dry land established. And on day six, the land creatures are created as well as mankind. And that is where we stopped last time. Genesis 1.24, we read, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Verse 25, And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now I want you to notice in these verses that you have the repetition of one particular phrase. God commands that the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And again we're told that cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. Twice that phrase is repeated in verse 24. Then when we have the fulfillment of the command, God's creation of the beasts of the earth and the cattle and everything creeps on the earth, Three times the text emphasizes that each of these categories were created after its kind. Literally in the Hebrew, it reads, according to, according to its category or according to its kind. So in the space of two verses, there are five references to kind. Now, this doesn't happen just by chance. It isn't there just because the writer thought that this was a nice poetic thing to keep repeating. It's not there simply because it makes the meter in the, each of these lines flow better. It's there because the God, the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing a particular point, and that is that God establishes the categories of animals and as well as plant life and that everything has specific boundaries in terms of its of its category. It, that, that one thing does not evolve into another kind. God establishes the kinds, and he establishes the categories. So this is the emphasis in the text. And we can't get around that. You can't come along and somehow figure out some way where you have some sort of development from one species into another species when you have this kind of repetition in the text. It's not there simply by chance. Now, when we look at this verse, verse 25, we see that there are three broad categories of animals. The beasts of the earth, this would refer to the wild animals. The beasts of the earth after their kind, that is a term that would refer to the Hayata Eretz, that is the living things of the earth, literally, and that would refer to all of the wild, undomesticated animals. Then the second category would be the cattle, from the Hebrew word behema, and this would refer to domestic animals, sheep, cattle, any kind of livestock, any sort of, of animal that would be designed for uh, use, the use of mankind. And then the third category is everything that creeps on the ground, everything that, that creeps upon the ground. And this is the Hebrew word, remish. Remish. 
R-E-M-E-S-H. And this would include not just creepy crawly things, not just uh, <coughs> centipedes and insects and mosquitoes, but the way that this is used in other passages, such as in Leviticus 11, 29 to 31, this also includes uh, many amphibians as well as small mammals. In Leviticus 11, it mentions uh, moles and rats and other small small mammals. So the term remish doesn't just refer to insects and you know worms and flies and bugs and all those wonderful things that come out in the summer. So God makes all of these simultaneously on the earth according to plan. That's why it says, and it was good. This is not a statement I said uh, relating to morality of everything, but it is a statement indicating it is according to plan just as God designed it. Now, this is the first act creative activity on the sixth day. Remember I pointed out that you have a pattern in the way Genesis is structured. Now, the reason I emphasize these things is to show that God does this according to a specific plan. There's a specific layout. The way it is related in the Scripture has order order to it, a kind of order you don't see in any other kind of ancient Near Eastern uh, literature. And it shows that God is a thinking God. He has a systematic approach to creation, and he has a blueprint that he is following. God the Father, we know, is the architect of creation. It is God the Son who carries out the work of creation, and it is God the Holy Spirit who was the revealer. And in this sense, God the Holy Spirit, according to Genesis 1-2, is the one who's involved in the restoration and energizing of the planet. So all of these things indicate that no chance is involved in any of this. It is all according to plan and by design. Then, as we saw last time, in the first day and the second day mentions one creative activity, and the third day mentions two. Then the fourth day mentions one creative activity, fifth day one creative activity, and the sixth day two creative activities. So there is a perfect symmetry and balance to the structure of God's creative activity during the six days of restoration. And now in verse 26, we come to the uh, apex of God's creative work, and that is the creation of the human race. In verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I want you to notice the similarity between verse 26 and verse 28. Now, verse 27 is different. Verse 27 we read, And God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, And here we see a mirror image of what is stated in verse 26, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the last part of that, this sense, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, is what is said in verse 26. So 28 and is a mirror or reflection of verse 26, and verse 27 is sandwiched in between. 
Now, whenever you have that kind of a structure in the scriptures, it's what's called an inclusio. And this is a literary device that an author uses in order to emphasize what's in the middle. You see, they didn't have things like underlining and boldface text and italics and things like that that we use to emphasize things in a written document. So they would do it through grammar and through structure. And when you have a structure like that where you have a statement A and then A prime, which is a repetition of, of the, the first A statement, and in between you have statement B, what is being emphasized and highlighted is statement B. And that is actually the subject of the of the passage. And the real emphasis here is not so much on what is said in verse 26 and 28, although that is very important, and we'll see that in a minute. But the emphasis is, and the focal point, is on Genesis 1, verse 27, that God created man in his image. So this creation of mankind on the sixth day is simply summarized here in verses 26 through 28. It is picked up then as the theme of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is going to come back and give us the details of how the man and the woman were created on the sixth day. But in terms of the opening narrative, all we're told is a summary of God's creation of uh, man, male, and female in his image. This is a typical stylistic device in Hebrew narrative. It's called purling. Purling, just like the jewel. Purling, where you string text together and you have a summary in one section. You come back and you pick up a specific uh, incident in there and then you come back and then you ex blow that up and expand that. And sometimes they can pick up something even smaller and take that out and blow that up and explain that. So it's, it's a way of uh, a stylistic device in Hebrew literature and a way of, of bringing emphasis. So there is no conflict then between the action of Genesis 1:26 through 28 and the description of God's creative activity in chapter 2. You'll often find liberals come along and say, well, look at what happens in chapter 2. You have all these various events that take place in chapter 2. How could they all take place in one day? And when we get there, we're going to go through all the activities and show that, golly, most of it could be done in an hour. The thing that they have real problems with is that Adam names all the beasts of the, of the field. And how can Adam name all the beasts of the field? Well, first of all, we don't know how many kinds there actually were. It's a much broader category than species. Obviously, everything hadn't developed out into the numerous species we have today. And it doesn't even have to indicate that Adam completed the task. But it's interesting, it uses the phrase beasts of the field, not beasts of the earth that we have here in verse 24. Beasts of the earth would include all the wild animals. Beasts of the field that's mentioned in chapter 2 simply emphasizes the domestic animals. So Adam isn't setting about naming every animal in, on the day he's created, but he begins to name all of the domestic animals, those that would be in and around the garden that would he would have uh, direct contact with as he is carrying out his role. The second thing that we ought, ought to point out is hold your place in Genesis 1 and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. 
Matthew 19, it's a well-known passage because this is where Jesus is queried about divorce by the Pharisees. And if you look at verse 3, the Pharisees come along and they ask Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And I want you to notice his answer. And the reason this is important is the liberal contention is Genesis 1 is one creation account and Genesis 2 is another creation account because they just conflict. You can't make Genesis 2 fit one 24-hour day. But look at how Jesus handles the answer to this question. He begins by saying in verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And that is a direct uh, quote from Genesis 1:27. So in his answer, the first part of his sentence, notice that verse 4 doesn't end with a period. The first part of his sentence is taken from Genesis 1:27, and verse 5, the second part of his sentence is and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What's that a quote from? That's a quote from Genesis 2:24. So Jesus, in answering the Pharisees, takes part of a verse in chapter 1 and part of a verse in chapter 2 and pulls them together, and he sees no contradiction between those two creative accounts. In fact, he sees them as completely uh, coordinate and completely compatible. So when, if people come along and try to make a distinction between Genesis 1 and Ch- Genesis 2, they're going to have real problems with Jesus. And this is the whole point that I keep emphasizing, is that you can't start uh, manipulating the text in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to try to fit any kind of modern cosmogony without doing serious damage to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the foundation of what Paul teaches in the epistles. Everything that's in the New Testament has its foundation in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11. So Genesis 1, 26 to 27 then sets forth uh, the fundamental text explaining the creation of man. And verse 28 gives us a clear statement of the purpose of, for man in terms of being in the image of of man. So uh, verse 20, 26 we read, God said, let us make man in our image. Well, let's take some time to, to exegete this verse to make sure we understand exactly what's going on here. First of all, God uses what's called a a cal uh, jessive. This is a, a an imperative paratival form that is a third, or excuse me, it's a cohortative. It's a first-person plural cohortative. In Hebrew, cohortative is, is a first-person command. This isn't like, um, you know, when we think of command in English, we think of you do something. But when you have a, and we don't have a first-person command, we just have a second-person singular and a second-person plural command. You do something. But in Hebrew, you have a first-person command. It's called a cohortative, and it is the idea, let us do something. So it is an imperatival statement addressed to a first person. Now, what is it, what's the significance of the, of the plural here? There are some who want to say that this is simply a plural of majesty, and, of course, this raises a number of problems for Jewish expositors. And one attempt to explain this is the idea that when God says, let us, He's talking to the angels. Let us make man. 
But then you have a problem because it says in the, in the, in the conclusion of that clause, let us make man in our image. Well, it can't be talking about God can't be sitting up there talking to the angels because then the image would be in the image of the angels and God. I mean, that just would not make sense. So that falls apart. The second idea you get is people who want to be uh, a little too rigid with the text, and they say, well, it's just a plural of majesty. Don't try to read the Trinity into this. Well, I think you have to at least read plurality in the Godhead into this because it's not only let us make man in our image, and, of course, that could be an editorial we. You, you often have something like that in, in royalty. You have the royal we where you have a king say, this is our uh, decision, and he's, of course, just talking about himself. But this is, and that's why it's called the plural of majesty, but it's more than that because of the use of the first-person plural pronoun in relationship to image. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so this repetition of our image and our likeness indicates this plurality. So while it doesn't teach the Trinity per se, you can't rule out plurality here, that it's clearly indicating a, a plurality in, in God. So God begins by saying, let us make man in our image uh, according to our likeness. Now, this type of exchange where you have God uh, talking to himself or discussing the plan within himself in the Godhead is something that appears in a number of places in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 2, verse 7, we read, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So in Psalm 2, 7, we have two persons involved in this dialogue. First of all, there is the individual referred to by the first person singular pronoun, I, and me, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So there is I, and then there is the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Well, who is my son? My son would be as a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He, that is the Lord, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So you have reference here in Psalm 2-7 to the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. Let's look at a second example of plurality in the Godhead in conversation among the members of the Trinity. Isaiah 48, verse 16. Isaiah 48:16. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. So here you have an individual speaking who is not Isaiah. This is a, an individual, a divine individual who is speaking. God is speaking here. The Lord is speaking here and says, come near to me. So you have one individual who is, who is speaking. From the first I have not spoken in secret. So this is talking about God's revelation. From the time it took place, I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So you have three individuals here, the Lord God, the first person singular individual who is speaking, and his spirit. So Isaiah 48:16 has all three members of the Trinity present, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So even though you don't have an explicit doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, you clearly have the presentation of plurality in the Godhead and conversation within that Godhead. A third passage to look at is Psalm 45, 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, who is this that is being addressed? It's not David. David is addressing deity. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Well, if he's addressing deity, who is your God? That indicates two persons in the uh, in the Godhead. And then Psalm 110.1, you have the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that first Lord is a is the sacred tetragrammaton Yahweh, that it, there refers to God the Father, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, who sits at the right hand of God the Father? That's the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have God the Father addressing the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 110.1, to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the plurality of the pronouns in Genesis 1.26 clearly indicates in light of Old Testament revelation that there is a plurality in the Godhead. Don't let anyone try to talk you into another uh, another view. The uh, New Testament, of course, affirms that and gives us more revelation related to that where we have a specific and a, 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 an ex, a specific and an explicit doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. Now, the second thing we need to look at in verse 26 is the phrase, in our image and according to our likeness. God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Now, there has been a tremendous amount of discussion about what these terms mean. What does it mean that we are in the image of God and that we are in the likeness of God? And notice in the English, they do try to make a distinction, as the Hebrew does, in the prepositions in our image and according to our likeness. There are two distinct Hebrew prepositions used here, and we'll look at that as we analyze this. Now, the terminology that's used here in the Hebrew is betsalmenu and kidmutenu. Betsalmenu and kidmutenu. And to break that down... We'll put the put it over on the overhead. We have the uh, Hebrew salam, T Z A L A M is the root for. It's got a preposition in front of it, uh, ba, which is. Just a, looks just a simple letter B, and this usually means in. It has various other meanings, as we'll see in a minute, but it usually has that idea of in, and Salam has the idea of image, although it is somewhat uncertain as to exactly what the etymology of that word is. It's used only 12 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. In 10 of those instances... Ten times it refers to a physical uh, representation. 
a physical representation. Something is in the image of something else if it is a physical, in the same physical form or, or, or physic, physical representation. It's used of the golden images of mice and um, you know, the King James uses tumors in 1 Samuel 6, 5. It's actually hemorrhoids, but that's a little rough for some people. So the translators of Scripture try to soften it. But actually, they made golden images of mice and hemorrhoids. And I always wanted to know what those golden hemorrhoids look like. My imagination just won't go there. But the term Salam is used there to refer to those images. It's also used of the images of Baal in 2 Kings 11.18 and in 2 Chronicles 23.17. It's used of other images of Canaanite deities in Numbers 33.52 and and, uh, several passages in Ezekiel and Amos 5.26. So here it has a very physical sense to it. But it also has an abstract use, and in Psalm 39, verse 7, it refers to the immaterial nature of human life. Psalm 73, 20, it refers to a dream image. So ten times it clearly talks about a physical representation, and then in two other passages it has more of an abstract, a non-material representation. Perhaps the best meaning, uh, uh, best word to understand the core meaning of Salam is the idea of representation. 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 And this idea of representation then clearly includes an abstract idea. The Aramaic cognate of this word is used in pretty much the same sense. It's used of the image in the statues in in Daniel. And it's also used for the attitude of the king's face. Now, when we look at the word ba, that is that preposition ba that is placed in front of it, that gives us a little more indication. It is what is called by the Hebrew scholars a baith essentiae, or the bath of essence, and that is that it is describing the essence of something, and it should be translated as. So man is created as the representation of God, and this emphasizes the fact that man is to represent God. We are created uh, as a representative of God. Now, the second word that is used, the second word that is used is is the word the uh, moot. It's the word damut, which looks like this. D a m U-T, damut. And the preposition preceding it is the preposition k. K, just the letter K with a very brief, short vowel, k. It's the shava, called the shava in Hebrew. So we have damut. And the word damut here is a much more abstract concept than the word uh, solemn. And this generally indicates uh, something that is not physical 
and is a, a an image or a repre- representative of something else and is virtually a synonym to the other word. So the two words function together as sort of a poetic pair to describe the same thing. And even though you have the preposition ba in front of the first one and ka in front of the second one, there is a shift. Now I want you to hold your place here. This is where it gets into fun little exegesis that loses people. But I want you to turn over to Genesis 5, verse 3, as we study the emphasis of this concept of, of, um, of image and likeness. In Genesis chapter 5, in verse 3 we read, And Adam lived 130 years, and begot a son in his own likeness, and after his image, in his own likeness. And there we have a reversal. Instead of, see, we have Salam first in Genesis 1, and then Damut. What happens in Genesis 5 is these words are switched. You have likeness mentioned first, and image mentioned second. But in Genesis 5.3, the prepositions are reversed. The preposition ba is now with damut, and ka is now with salam. And this just indicates, by comparing the two passages, the total interchangeability of the two ideas. And this indicates, basically, the function of man is to represent God, and that man's form, that is his essence, is a reflection of God. His basic form is a reflection of God, and this is what distinguishes man from all manner of living things. Now, I pointed out earlier that when you have on the creation of the third day vegetation, it is not life. You have in the Hebrew the word nefesh. Nefesh hayah. N-E-P-H-E-S-H-H-A-Y-A-H. Nefesh hayah. And nefesh hayah indicates a living thing. And it is this word nefesh which is uh, has the idea of life in many passages... In other passages, it has the idea of soul. And it is only to the animals and to mankind that you have this concept of nefesh. But what distinguishes man's nefesh from the nefesh of the animal kingdom is that man is in the image and likeness of God. You'll find all kinds of theories. What makes animals animals and man-man? Well, animals can't do this, and animals can't communicate, and animals can't reason. And you have a number of different things like that, and that is not grounded in the text. That is ground. That is science developing understanding of the di- distinctions between animals and man on the basis of observation. But remember, the presupposition of science is that man evolved from animals, so ultimately the categories are going to break down for them. What the Bible says is what makes a difference between a, a man and an animal is that men are created in the image and the likeness of God, They are to represent God, and they are given 
certain faculties that enable them to do that, that reflect God, that go far beyond anything that might be apparent in animals. Because what happens if you start off and saying, well, animals, what distinguishes animals from man is the ability to communicate or the ability to reason. So what do you do when you have a, 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 a chimpanzee or an ape in San Diego taught sign language and then starts joining words together to make new words? Well, how do you handle that? I mean, as a Christian, all of a sudden, if your assumption is that what makes man different from animals is communication, now you've got a problem. But that's because your definition of what distinguished man from animals wasn't biblical. It was what you got from science. And same thing with, with reason. There seems to be, for some some animals, a certain ability to communicate and a certain ability to to. Uh, perhaps even reason at an extremely rudimentary level. So the only thing that you can say for certain is that the difference between uh, the animals and mankind is that mankind is created in the image and likeness of God. Now, in terms, now that has two fa- two aspects to this. For so long. We, tr- we react to the fact that this is physical. Well, God doesn't look like man. He's not a bipedal hominoid. He doesn't have two eyes and nose and a mouth and two arms and two legs. And, of course, that's what you get in some cults where you have a, an uh, anthropomorphic deity that the God looks like man. That's what you have in, in Mormon theology. But you can't escape the fact that when you have the words solemn, that salam, that Ten of the twelve uses refer to a physical representation. So what is that all about? Does that mean that mankind is a physical representative of God? No, I don't think so. I think that primarily the first aspect of this representation is uh, is immaterial. It is non-material, is what I mean. It is non-material, and it has to do with the makeup of man in terms of his soul and his human spirit. And that is that God gave man uh, self-consciousness so that when he looks in the mirror and he sees himself, he knows himself. Animals don't know that. I mean, you see birds this time of year fighting with their reflection in the, in the, in the window. They know that, that they think that's another bird. They don't look at that reflection and see themselves. You have a dog. Dog looks in the mirror, sees another dog, doesn't see himself. But you look in the mirror, and hopefully on a good day, and you're not too tired, you know who you are. And you don't uh, wonder who that is staring back at you. Although after you hit 50, there are times when you do look in the mirror and wonder who that is, who stole your body and put you in this one. Okay, you have self-consciousness. Then there is mentality, that is the ability to think, to think God's thoughts after him, to reason according to what God has revealed. And I'm giving these definitions as they are before the, before the flood. In self-consciousness, you have man recognizing God, so it is uh, correlative to God-consciousness. In mentality, he is thinking the thoughts of God. Thinking God's thoughts, then you have a uh, a volition. He is a self-determination, and in the pre-fall condition, he is following God's will. He is uh, following God's God's, and he is obedient to God and following God's directives. And then finally, you have a conscience which stores the norms and standards, and this is directed towards God and has. 
uh, divine absolutes stored in that original conscience. That up until the time they sinned, they understood that, that they could eat from anything, but they couldn't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the absolute standard that was in their conscience. So the, these four elements work together to make up the soul, and then they are bound together with the human spirit, which means that their self-consciousness is able to relate to God, their mentality is able to understand God's thoughts, their volition responds to God, and their conscience has divine norms and standards. When that human spirit is lost and they are spiritually dead, they're no longer going to be uh, God-conscious in the same sense. We reach God-consciousness as we develop, and by that we mean something a little different than awareness of God's existence by God-consciousness here, I mean a full understanding of who and what God is because they are the image-bearer of God. There is a, a complete rapport with God prior to the fall. Uh, but after the fall, they can't think God's thoughts. They're now bound up in human viewpoint. Man becomes the ultimate reference point in volition there, in negative volition, hostility toward God. And their conscience now has a second set of standards, a set of pseudo-standards adopted from their own experience. So man is created immaterially with a human soul and a human spirit. But this is housed in a physical body. And the physical body that we have and the way it looks, and I'm not talking about the way that any individual's body looks because, frankly, I think that uh, Adam and the woman's original body was quite a bit better than what any of us experience. Uh, it may have even been larger, but it was certainly a perfect human body. But when God designed that body with two arms and, and two legs and, and a head and and putting the brain in the head and putting the heart in the chest and lungs and everything related to it, the five senses, everything related to that physical body was not by chance. God just didn't come up and say, oh, you know, I've, I've created this animal like this and that animal like this, and I keep getting a little better each time I try it, and now I'm going to, I've done monkeys and apes, and I think I can do even a better job, so I'm going to create a body according to that model. God is omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. He has always known all the knowable. And God neither increases nor diminishes in knowledge. That means that from eternity past, God knew everything that was going to happen in human history. God knew that when he created, and let's say if he created first class condition, a, a race with volition that they would sin, and that the only solution to the sin problem would be that he would have to incarnate himself into that race. So God the Father in eternity past, let's anthrop anthropopathize this, God the Father looking down the corridors of time knows, golly, I'm going to have to become one of these creatures. So how can I design a body? What is going to be the most perfect physical form that I could develop so that if you're going to take me, infinite God, who is spirit, who has all of these various facets and dimensions to his character, if, you're going to if I'm going to take myself and I'm going to scrunch myself down and pack myself down into a finite physical form, what is going to be the very best physical form in which I can put myself? I mean, just think about it. You've got all kinds of ideas about what creatures could look like. Just watch Star Trek or Star Wars or some other science fiction sometime. And there's all kinds of ways that, that arms and legs and heads and, uh, can, can be put together. Man comes up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And, of course, God could have, you know, in a sense, thought of all those and many, many more. So 
the, way, the reason our bodies are designed the, the way they are isn't just by pure chance. It is because God knew that he needed a, a body in wh- through which he would reveal himself in a finite body, that the infinite God would become finite man and reveal himself to man. So the physical body isn't something that just happens. It is precisely what was needed and the best form that could be found form that could ever be developed in, through which God could reveal himself, through which the infinite God could reveal himself. So there is a physical dimension. It is not that your physical body looks like God, but it is that if God is going to have to make himself finite and reveal himself to creatures, it couldn't be done in a better physical form than the one in which he designed for mankind. Now let's go to the next facet of the image of God. We've gone from Genesis 1, and we see that God creates man in his image and according to his likeness, and he creates them male and female in verse 27. And that indicates that both the male and the female are in the image of God, but there is a distinction from the very beginning between the male image and the female image. And that implies that there is a difference in the soul makeup or the soul orientation, let's say, of the woman and the man. The man is designed to function in one sense, in one way, and the woman is going to be designed to function in another way, both working together as a team to fulfill the purpose and plan of God. But something happens, and that is that they fail in Genesis chapter 3, and they fall into sin, and something happens to the image of God. Now, there are some people that teach that the image of God is erased. And the issue is, is it erased or is it simply effaced? Is it marred or corrupted or is it destroyed? Let's, to answer that, let's go to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, with the beginning of the first genealogy, we read, in the, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam, In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And here we have the word uh, uh, damut. He's in the likeness of God. It reminds us of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He created them male and female. So once again, it's a reminder that male and female are in the likeness of God, the image of God. And he blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now notice, it doesn't say in the, he begot, begets a son in God's image. He begets a son in his image. Now the difference is that now he's got, there's an image there, the image of God, but it's marred. The image of God we'll get into later on. It has to do with its function of ruling and reigning, but it's marred now because of sin. So it's now in the image of man or in the image of Adam. But does that mean the image of God is gone? No, it's not. Let's turn over a few more pages to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, we have the foundation for the principle of capital punishment given uh, starting in verse 5. In verse 5 we read, Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, so that if a beast kills a human being, then that beast has to die. 
From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That is the delegation of the most serious form of judicial action, and that is capital punishment. This is the foundation for all judicial action in human history, because if God gives us the most serious form, uh, delegates the most serious form of legal action, then that would mean that even lesser forms of legal action are also delegated to mankind. Now, why is it that man requires capital punishment in the case of murder? The second part of the verse, for in the image of God he made man. So man is still in the image of God, though it's marred. And because man is in the image of God, because this is so important that if someone kills another human being, it is not only an act against another human being, but it is viewed as an act against the Creator. And because it's viewed as an act of rebellion against the Creator, God demands capital punishment. Now, it's important for us to understand that as believers because so often when people argue for capital punishment, they argue from false premises. They say, well, capital punishment is important because it um, it restrains crime. Well, it might restrain crime, but that's not what God says. That's not the reasoning that God gives in Genesis 9. Other people say, well, we need to have capital punishment uh, to bring about vengeance. No, it's not about vengeance. Even eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is not a statement about vengeance. It's a statement about accountability, and there is a difference. Capital punishment is not about vindictiveness. It's not about vengeance. It's not about uh, restraining crime, even though that may, may have some secondary impact. It is about the fact that this individual has created an act of blasphemy. It is a theological act that is ha- of such seriousness that this person ha- that, that commits murder has uh, sacrificed his right to life. He has given up his right to life, and, and God demands that he be removed. And, of course, you have the sign of the covenant given, in verse 12 and following, which is the rainbow. And so as long as you see a rainbow in the clouds, and this covenant is still in effect, and as part of that, it reminds us that capital punishment is still in effect. Now, when we get to the New Testament, the concept of image shifts. The concept of image shifts. In the Old Testament, we're created originally in the image of God. That image is marred, and because it comes uh, the image of, of man and the image of Adam, But it's still there, though it's corrupted. In the New Testament, the focus on the image is now on Jesus Christ. It is the image of Christ that is emphasized. Romans 8.29 tells us, For whom he foreknew, and this is talking about believers, he also predestined. So predestined means to, uh, to assign a destiny or goal beforehand. That's the root concept. It means to assign a destiny or our goal ahead of time. So God has a goal for each of us. And that goal, that predetermined goal, is to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what's God plans, what is God's predetermined plan for your life? Is that you become in the image of Christ. See, you were, a man was originally created in the image of God. That image was marred and defaced by sin. And only through regeneration and then sanctification is that image restored. And this is the goal, is to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
This is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that is, as believers, we start off in the image of Adam, and as we advance in spiritual maturity, we reflect God's character more and more in the image of Christ, the image of the heavenly. 2 Corinthians 3.18 states, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Now, I want you to notice that there's a, there's a phrase there, secondary phrase, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Let's drop that off. Let's read the main, the main sentence. But we all are being transformed into the same image. See, we're to be conformed to the image of Christ, and in the process of spiritual growth, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is the process of, of spiritual maturity, is we are being changed into the, to where we reflect the character, the person of Jesus Christ. This is the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, is that is the character of Jesus Christ. This is again stated in Colossians 3 verse 10 that as believers we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, that is Bible doctrine, according to the image of the one who created him. So we are being renewed to this original image. So we start off, man, it starts off being created in the image of God. That image is marred and defaced by, by sin. And then through salvation and then sanctification, that image is renewed and restored as we become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the, fun, the purpose of all of that is ultimately to fulfill the original dominion mandate. Now, this is done ultimately through Jesus Christ in his return at the second coming. He is the one who is said to be the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4 which starts off with a reference to Satan, he in whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, when we're conformed to the image of Christ, we're also being conformed to the image of God. And Colossians 1.15, And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this covers the doctrine of the image of God. Now, the image is not simply there because we are to represent God, but how are we to represent God? And that is the function of the next verse, which is sometimes called the dominion mandate. And that is going to bring us into a whole new uh, arena of discussion, which we'll have to save for last time, because it indicates the role and the function of mankind over creation. So we will start with those terms next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for this opportunity to come to a greater understanding of who we are as image bearers, that we are created in your image, that image begins to be restored with regeneration, and that it is the process of sanctification to completely restore that image. Although it is never completed this side of eternity, that is the ultimate goal, to be in the image of Christ who will come back and who will restore all things. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.